0: We'll turn to several places in Scripture this afternoon. First, to the prophecy of Daniel. And there we'll look at Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2 verses 31 through 45. The context for this is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had a dream, was troubled by it, forced the wise men to not only interpret it, but also tell what that dream was to prove that they were genuine. And Daniel then prayed to God, and God revealed to him what the dream was and its interpretations. So now Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to tell him about the dream that he had. So beginning in verse 31, Daniel says, "'You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening.'" Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the the God of heaven has given the kingdom the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay." And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people." It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So far from Daniel 2. Let's also turn to Daniel 7. We looked at this passage recently when we, on the Ascension Day service, and we'll take a brief look at it again in reflecting on Christ's Ascension from a more theological perspective as we look at it in the Heidelberg Catechism. So we'll look at Daniel 7, verses 9 through 18. This is part of Daniel's vision of the four beasts, I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So far from Daniel, And then finally, let's turn to the New Testament. Just a few verses, five verses from Matthew 28. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 110, a psalm which has often been ascribed to the ascended and risen Lord Jesus Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian faith to study the the essentials, the basics of the Christian and the Reformed faith, and we find ourselves this week in Lord's Day Lord's Day eighteen, and as it happens. Uh, I've decided to lump 18 and the first half of 19 together. I'll explain in a minute why, and so we'll read Lord's Day 18 and the first half of Lord's Day 19. There the question is, what do you confess when you say he ascended into heaven? That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. Is Christ then not with us until the end of the world, as he has promised us? Christ is true man and true God. With respect to his human nature, he is no longer on earth, but with respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. But are the two natures in Christ not separated from each other if his human nature is not present wherever his divinity is? Not at all, for his divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. So it must follow that his divinity is indeed beyond the human nature which he has taken on, and nevertheless is within this human nature and remains personally united with it. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us First he is our advocate in heaven before his father. Second we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he our head will also take us his members up to himself. Third he sends his spirit he sends us his spirit as a counter pledge by whose power we speak, we seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and not the things that are on earth continuing Why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, by his Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. So far, The Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago when we began looking at the events of Jesus' life, starting with the, the virgin birth, I spent a few minutes introducing how Christianity in the first place is a set of beliefs concerning the past. About 75% of the Bible is historical narrative. Now there, there's, Of course, there's more to our faith than only what we believe about history, but history is essential and predominant in our faith. Christianity is a historical religion, and if you were to take out all the things that we believe about history, whatever you'd have left is not Christianity anymore. It may be a moral philosophy about doing good or about receiving forgiveness, but it's not Christianity without the history that you find also in Scripture. So the majority of what makes up the Bible is a record of the works of God in history. And so as Christians, uh, it's an essential part of our faith that we believe certain things about history. But now, as we turn to Christ's, Christ's ascension, it's good to recognize also the things we believe about history are not only limited to the past. It's important to remember that usually when we talk about history, we're referring to, to things that have happened in the past. But history, of course, is much bigger than just the past. It includes the present, and it includes the future as well. We are, we are right now living in the middle of history. That's all part of, of history, and that's true of our faith as well. Christianity is just as much a historical religion when it comes to the present and the future as as when it comes to to the past. If we were to take out what we believe about the present and about the future, that too would rob Christianity of its substance. And whatever you'd have left could not be Christianity anymore. And that's where the Apostles' Creed then takes us this afternoon. We've been following through the, the articles of the Apostles' Creed line by line concerning the history of of Jesus Christ, his birth, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. All of those are things in the past as well as his ascension. But now with with the ascension, the creed takes us or transitions us from the past to to the present. Jesus Christ isn't just a, a person who did important things in the past. He's also doing things right now in the present and he's going to do things in history also in the future and those things are also essential to our faith now at a first reading of the apostles creed it almost sounds like it presents a pretty glib view of of the present of what christ is doing now he in the past you have this long list of of things that christ did culminating in his death and resurrection and and then And and you can also think of the glorious things that Christ is going to do in the future, in his return, judging the living and the dead. But all that the Creed says about the present is that Jesus is sitting down. It seems almost a a little glib, like isn't he doing anything more than that? Well, our our catechism is helpful there. It explains that that's not all that our fathers meant when they wrote that he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And in fact, when you consider what the catechism teaches and what our our church fathers meant when they wrote the creed, you would quickly realize this stage of history in the present is probably the most busy of Jesus' entire history. So I gave the message this this title, Christ ascended into heaven in order to reign over earth. And you can see that those two halves are are meant to be together. The ascension is a transition that brings us to, to the present. So what we'll do this afternoon is we'll look very briefly at Christ's ascension itself. It's the last thing that the Creed teaches concerning the past, and then we'll turn with the creed and consider the, the awesome and glorious truth about the present, what Christ is doing right now. Now I should quickly explain why I chose to put Lord's Day 18 and 19 together. If you were to look at the Apostles' Creed in the Book of Praise, it's on page 493, you'll notice that Christ's ascension and Christ's sitting down, also called his session more, more formally, Christ's ascension and Christ's session at the right hand of the Father are kept as a single unit in the Apostles' Creed. You can see that they're on the same, on the same line. And Christ's return is numbered separately. And, and that's because the Apostles' Creed was meant to be read that way. The ascension and the sitting down are meant to be taken as a single unit and the return separately. But in the Catechism, you, you can notice the, the Ascension and the Sitting Down are split into two Lord's Days. And then the Sitting Down and the Return are grouped together into, into one. And they had their reasons for, for doing that. But it's good to know that's not how the Creed was initially structured. And, and I believe it makes good sense to treat the Creed um, the way it was meant to be, to be read, with the Ascension and the Sitting Down together. Now, let me explain why the Catechism does what it does. It's all because of the the controversies that happened in the Great Reformation, a time when there was a massive return to the truth of Scripture, leaving behind accumulated traditions that had no place in Scripture. And, And during that time, there was a huge controversy between Protestant traditions about the Lord's Supper. And, and Lutherans had this idea that, that they took from Roman Catholicism that Christ had to be bodily present somehow in, in the Lord's Supper. If you're wondering how this is related, just wait, you'll, you'll see. Uh, they believed that Christ had to be present in the Lord's Supper in his body, but they didn't believe that the bread and wine literally became Christ's body and blood. So they, they just insisted, somehow, mysteriously, Christ is bodily present in, in the Lord's Supper. Not just spiritually present, but bodily present in his, in his physical body. But Christ, of course, never taught that himself. It's a misunderstanding over his words when he said of the bread, this is my body. He meant this represents my body. And so other reformers, including Calvin, oppose this idea that Christ has to be bodily present in the Lord's Supper. There's no biblical support for that idea, and really it doesn't even make sense. How, how is Christ bodily present in the Lord's Supper and yet not, not actually in the bread and wine? They aren't actually his body. It's a strange idea, and even the Lutherans acknowledge it's a, it's a mysterious idea, but, but they still to this day have not given that one up. Well, sadly, as things developed, Lutherans started accusing Reformed traditions of, of trying to separate Christ's two natures. They said if Christ is God, and God is everywhere present, then Christ also must be present right here in the supper, which, which is true. He is present with us. But then they argued if Christ is present, then he also has to be present in his body, because otherwise you're separating the two natures of, of Christ. Well, the Catechism does a good job of cutting through this this argument. It's true. Christ is everywhere. He is God, and God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. And so we think of what Christ himself said to the apostles. I am with you until the end of the age. But that doesn't mean, of course, that his his body is here with us. His body went to heaven. And as the Catechism teaches, that doesn't mean that the two natures are, are therefore separated Christ's divinity is everywhere, meaning as God, he fills both earth and heaven and the whole universe. He fills all space. And that means, of course, that he is also then still united with his body. But his body is not everywhere. His body is in heaven. He, in spirit, in his divinity, is everywhere. He isn't limited to his body and, and so his, his presence stretches beyond his body. It's not separated from it, but it's beyond his body. So we're not separating the two natures. We're recognizing the difference between these two natures. A human nature doesn't fill all space. God's nature does. Well, that's why the Catechism splits this line of the Creed into two Lord's Days, so that it could spend some time dealing with this, this strange theological question that came between Lutherans and, and the Reformed. We don't ourselves need to really spend more time with this question than we've already spent. There, this was a big theological debate in that time. In our own circumstance, it's more a question of, of common sense. It's understanding the difference between a human nature and, and a divine nature. And that's why I chose to join these two Lord's Days back together again. Really, Lord's Day 19 ought to be split down down the middle, since it deals with two articles of, of the, the Apostles' Creed. So with that question settled then, what did the early Christians mean when they said that Christ ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father? What's in the sitting the ascension itself is, is fairly straightforward. The catechism explains it simply. Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, was taken up into heaven. You can read about that in Luke 24. And that's really all there is to say about the event itself. The early Christians, they put it into the creed because there were people that said that, that Christ rose from the dead in our hearts, spiritually, but not bodily, and he ascended into heaven spiritually, but but not bodily. And so the early Christians put this into the creed to say, no, Christ ascended bodily into into heaven before the eyes of all his disciples, exactly as Luke 24 says it happened. And so, so any attempt to, to try and, and spiritualize it or, or make it theology but not history is, is essentially a denial of what Scripture very plainly teaches. It's unbelief. So, so the early Christians already insisted on the historical truth of what actually happened. So Christ ascended from earth into heaven. What then? Well, what does Scripture teach, then, about what Christ is doing right now? That's where we want to spend the rest of our time this afternoon. And we want to focus on that not only because it's a deeply biblical truth that's very often overlooked by Christians, but also because it should be an immensely encouraging truth for us. And that's why Scripture gives it the emphasis that Scripture does. Knowing what Christ is doing right now, in history is right at the heart of our Christian worldview, the way that we see the world and when we know what Christ is doing now in history, it allows us to also see a pattern in history in the world and to see ourselves as part of that history as part of what god and, and God through Christ is doing in the world, to see ourselves as part of god 's larger plan for the nations, we want to have the eyes to, to see that to know how do we fit in in god 's larger history and so I would encourage you then to look with me at the biblical text and allow it to expand your vision and if scripture doesn 't right now much affect your view of how your, your view of history or how our century fits into history, then my hope is that by the end of this service, God's word would begin to have that effect on, on our understanding. So we look first at, at Daniel chapter 2. Try and imagine Daniel in the courts of King Nebuchadnezzar, standing before the most powerful king on the planet, which the Babylonian king certainly was at that time. And having just seen the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had seen, he saw a great image, mighty, of exceeding brightness, whose appearance was frightening. And we read about that, the the head of, of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And as Daniel observed that image God answered his prayer and showed him the meaning also of that dream God gave him the wisdom to recognize what he was seeing all the mighty kingdoms of the world pictured in one statue and and, and so he tells King Nebuchadnezzar exactly this. He says, this, this g- head of gold is you, Nebuchadnezzar. God has subjected all flesh, all the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and all mankind to the king of Babylon. And then Daniel recognized under that the chest and arms of silver were an inferior kingdom, a kingdom that was not as great, but still managed to, to come after that. And then again, another, even more inferior kingdom. And then another kingdom, it says, as strong and hard and destructive as iron that breaks the world or shatters the world into pieces and crushes everything in its path that we know was pointing ahead to the Roman kingdom. And, and though its, its feet were, were mixed with clay, it, its feet were mixed with clay, and that shows that it was doomed ultimately to fall apart. And so Daniel sees this image and then Daniel sees a stone cut out from the mountain by no human hand. In other words, it's the work of God. And it broke into pieces this statue of the the iron and the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. It says that stone shattered that statue and it became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And Daniel recognized exactly What he was seeing. He was seeing the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what fears ran through Daniel's mind as he brought the message of that dream? to King Nebuchadnezzar to tell him what he had seen and what it meant. He knew what it meant. It meant the kingdom of God was going to come, and it wouldn't just be greater than Babylon. It would shatter Babylon. It would destroy Babylon and all these other kingdoms. Can you imagine Daniel's fears as he went before Nebuchadnezzar to tell him that? Certainly prophets have died for less, well, years later, long after Nebuchadnezzar died, we still find Daniel serving in the courts of the king of Babylon, this time under a different king, Belshazzar. And this is in Daniel 7. This is the text we looked at also on Ascension Day. Let's take another brief look at that text. He says as as he lay in bed, he saw a vision, and what a vision. It was, he says. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing white as snow. His head, his hair like pure wool, his throne fiery flames, and its wheels burning fire. So he knew he was looking at the very throne of God. He said a thousand thousands served him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened. He knew he was looking at a very holy place, the very throne room of God from which God judges. And then he turns in the next verses, and he sees again the kingdoms of the world, but this time in the form of a beast, a great and terrible beast, it says, and, and then he sees that beast, just like the statue, utterly vanquished, destroyed, and thrown down. It, it says his body was destroyed and given over to be burned with fire, and then Daniel sees Or Daniel says in in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. I mentioned on, on Ascension Day what Daniel was seeing here was the same thing that the apostles were seeing or the disciples I guess you would call them at that time, were seeing when they saw Christ's ascension. Except they were watching it from the perspective of earth, him going up and a cloud covering him. Daniel got to see Christ coming from the perspective of heaven, coming on the clouds, not hidden from the clouds. And so he says, "There came. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And here's the the key verse we want to spend our time on. It says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So again, Daniel is seeing from the perspective of heaven what the disciples saw from earth, and Daniel sees up there what the disciples did not see, a dominion being given to Christ, a dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And notice how absolute this dominion is, that all peoples, nations, and languages would serve him. Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself told the disciples that exactly this would happen, and that's what we read in Matthew 28. Moments before he ascended into heaven, he told the disciples, "...all authority," just like all dominion, "...all authority in heaven, as well as on earth, has been given to me." And go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then he makes that promise, behold, I'm with you till the end of the age. Well, let's just pause and, and think about what happened in those verses, what Daniel saw What the apostles saw in Galilee, and what the Lord Jesus himself explained, when Christ rose from the dead, what was it that was given to him? It was all authority in heaven as well as on earth. And what does that look like in in practice, in reality? Well, according to what Daniel saw, here's what it looks like. A dominion and glory and a kingdom being given to him so that all peoples, all nations, and all languages would serve him. That is what happened when Christ ascended and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now let's just think about what that means for us. All authority in Canada has been given to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus says, as it were, to Justin Trudeau, this country is mine. I bought it with my blood, and I will be honored and served in this country, or I will remove this government and set up a new one in its place. All authority in the province of Ontario has been given to the Lord Jesus. It's the duty of Kathleen Wynne, whether she recognizes it or not, to see to it that Christ's laws be the laws of the land, that his standard of justice and his standard of righteousness be the standard that we also honor in this country. It's true even of the small town of Alora. All authority in this town has been given to the Lord Jesus. It's his his name ought to be honored even in the public square. There's, there's no such thing and, and there never was supposed to be such a thing as a, a separation of church and state such that the two never touch one another. Either God will rule in this country through Christ or some other God will. Will be ruling. And we see this already in the many laws that have been set up in direct opposition to the law of God. Either Christ will rule through his servants, or the servants of this land will be part of Satan's rule and rebellion. And if that's the case, they had better be warned. The dominion has been given already to Christ, and they will be vanquished. He is taking. That dominion. Notice what happens when when the rock in Daniel's dream is, or Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is cut out of the mountain. It doesn't just become a great mountain standing next to that statue of gold and and silver and and so forth, leaving that, that statue, those earthly kingdoms, to themselves. No, it shatters that statue. It interacts with that statue and destroys it and becomes something else in its place. The kingdom of God does not come as an alternative kingdom of which we, we can become members if we so please. No, the kingdom of God, ever since Christ ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago, and for how, however many thousands of years might be left, the kingdom of God has been coming to this world in the conversion of hearts and minds, and wills, and lives to the Lord Jesus, and it brings with it the submission of entire peoples and even entire nations to his perfect righteous rule. That is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world do not and cannot coexist. Either Canada will be a part of the kingdom of God, or or Canada will be destroyed by the kingdom of God. All dominion is given to the Lord Jesus, and he is taking it, and he will not stop until he has taken it all for himself. It certainly begins with a a spiritual dominion, the conversion of hearts and minds, but it can't possibly end there, and God never meant for it to end there there cannot be the conversion of hearts and minds without also the conversion of lives and with that the conversion of homes and with that the conversion of communities and ultimately the conversion of nations that's what's meant in this article in the apostles creed which speaks about what is happening in history today in the present in the present And that is a radical Christian belief. As Christians, this is what we believe about our present day. We believe that Christ, having ascended on high, is ruling over the earth in such a way that he is either converting or destroying every nation which sets itself up against him. And not only every nation, but every power and every institution. You can see that also, our, our catechism even reflects that in the the Lord's day that speaks about your kingdom come. Destroy every power that raises itself against you. That's what we pray for, and not just in the life to come, but also on the earth, in history. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ will deliver the kingdom of to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. It's what what the Apostle Peter also recognized on the day of Pentecost, and he, he quoted Psalm 110, which we sang earlier, and he, he takes those words as the words that the, that the Lord speaks that God speaks to the Lord Jesus on his ascension. He says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That is what Christ is busy doing right now. For the last 2,000 years, he has been progressively Putting his enemies under his feet, establishing his rule of justice and righteousness, converting hearts, minds, and lives. And of course, inevitably, that translates into the conversion of communities and nations and laws and governments. That's what we should be praying for. It's what the Lord Jesus taught us to pray for when he said, Pray your kingdom come. And it's what we should be expecting also to see. And it's what, in many respects, we have seen already over the last 2,000 years of history, even though it's not a linear progression. In the last 50 years, there's no question that this country has been very quickly abandoning the rule of the Lord Jesus, but it's also very quickly headed towards destruction. One cannot rebel against Christ without ultimately being destroyed. And so it, it's as in any battle that there are lines that that don't advance for a period of time, maybe even times when a line must retreat, but the war and the battle continues on, and Christ has promised it will continue on until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And and that is what he will then continue to do for the next 2,000 years or more if he doesn't return before then. So Christ ascended into heaven in order to reign over earth, and we see his reign has a progressive character. Dominion has been given to Christ, and Christ is busy, active, taking that dominion. He will not permit the nations, which are his now, to continue to rebel forever. Those who do not submit, he warns, he will either convert them by his spirit or remove them and put new governments in their place. There's a progression to Christ's rule. He will reign until he puts his enemies under his feet." Now we don't know when that day will be. We don't know either to what extent Christ will establish His kingdom before He returns. We cannot say the the whole earth. Will be Christianized and only then will Christ return. Nor could we throw out a number and say 90% of the earth will be Christianized and then Christ will return. Christ hasn't told us to what extent he will continue his work until the day he comes back. But we know that Christ is putting his enemies under his feet. If he returns today, then he will immediately destroy all his enemies and establish his kingdom immediately. If he returns 2,000 years from now, then between then and now, we may know he will continue to build his church and his kingdom. It will continue to grow, and his rule will continue to increase. And we should understand Christ does this by his Spirit through his servants, who work for him yes through us his people our, our conviction that Christ is is sitting at the right hand of the father and reigning and putting his enemies under his feet that does not mean at all that we have the privilege of sitting idly by and watching Christ accomplish that. No, the means by which Christ builds his kingdom is precisely the sacrifice, the suffering, the service, the ministry of his servants here on earth as they are blessed with the Holy Spirit. Our work, our love for our neighbors, our financial sacrifices, our sacrifices of time, our endurance of the scorn that the world might heap on us, our returning good for evil, our bold testimony to the world. When, when those things are empowered and blessed by the Holy Spirit, those are the means by which Christ is building his kingdom. The, the belief then that Christ is reigning in heaven and building his kingdom on earth is no excuse at all for us to sit idly by. It's the calling for us to get involved in that work, to be a part, have the privilege of being a part of the work that Christ is doing to build his kingdom here on earth. But now some might, might hear all of this and they might object saying, well, what then did Christ mean when he said my kingdom is, is not of this world? That's from John 18 verse, verse 36. He said that to, to Pilate. And it's a good question and it's good that we rightly understand what Christ meant by this. Many People appeal to this verse as a way of saying, well, Christ's kingdom has nothing to do at all with the, the kingdoms of, of this world, as if it's, it's only spiritual. It's not political. It doesn't get involved with those political matters. Well, that's not at all what Christ taught, and it's not what, what you see in Daniel either. When, when this rock is cut out of the mountain and it grew into a mighty mountain, it shatters the kingdoms of the world together with all their laws and government. and and politics, but, and here's what Christ is referring to when he says this to Pilate, it does not shatter them by the same means that they would shatter one another. So Christ continues to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting that I not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. The point that the Lord Jesus is making is not that his kingdom is this invisible, ethereal reality, or it's a strictly spiritual reality, but that his kingdom, unlike the empires of the world, does not derive its power from the powers of this world, from earthly human strength. And therefore, it also does not establish itself using earthly means, such as armies and, and And physical force. It's the difference, one of the big differences between Christianity and Islam. We both both religions share the hope that their religion will one day dominate the earth. We certainly have that hope, but for Islam, it is a kingdom like the kingdoms of this world. It will spread through physical force, through warfare, or whatever means are available to the servants of Islam. That is not the kingdom of God that Christ is bringing his kingdom establishes itself through the conversion of hearts and lives and minds, through the renewal of hearts and minds and lives. His kingdom begins in changed Now, of course, it doesn't end there, but that's where it derives its power, through the Holy Spirit working in individual hearts, changing them to turn this creation into a new kingdom. So he is overthrowing the kingdoms of the world, and he is building his kingdom by a very by by an entirely different means than, than the kingdoms of this world might overthrow one another. He does so by the power of the Spirit, through the message of the gospel, through the conversion of hearts and lives. But now, and this is in conclusion, the kingdom of Christ does not end with only the conversion of hearts. The conversion of hearts necessarily leads to the transformation of lives. And that in turn leads to the transformation of human laws and human governments wherever the gospel goes, wherever the gospel takes hold of a society, that society cannot remain the same. As Christ takes dominion over all peoples, nations, and languages, he not only gives them the joy of eternal salvation through the gospel, but also through that, excuse me, through that gospel, he establishes a kingdom of justice and righteousness already here on earth in this world. And that was, after all, Christ's command to his disciples. Uh, Make disciples, he told them, of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That obedience is a fruit of the gospel. And this is all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Christ couldn't stay on earth in order to build his kingdom from earth. And perhaps you've wondered that. Why did Christ even need to leave earth? Couldn't he have done all that right from from Jerusalem, for example? Couldn't he have set up his throne there and built his kingdom from there? Well, the Lord Jesus told his disciples that he needed To leave. He says, This is John 16. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So that's the work of the Holy Spirit that can only begin when Christ has gone to the Father to be received by the Father, to send the Spirit together with the Father down to us on earth. So he says he had to leave for the Spirit to come. It's not because it's impossible for Jesus and the Spirit to work simultaneously at the same time, but because his his work on the cross culminating in his ascension to heaven is the basis from which the Spirit then goes and, and works in us. The Spirit couldn't do his work until Christ had first done his work and risen, and ascended in glory. And as soon as that work of Christ was finished, then Christ went to heaven, and his kingdom-building work began from heaven through the Spirit. And that's what Peter also then observes on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out. He says, this Jesus, God raised up, And of that we're all witnesses. And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's the the present. That's the line of the Apostles' Creed. The sitting at the right hand of God. Being exalted there and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. He has poured this out that you yourself see and hear. In other words, the kingdom building work of Christ is the work of the Spirit who came in power on the day of Pentecost to begin the great world mission, which is the very beginning of Christ's kingdom-building work. So the Spirit was the Spirit gave the gift of tongues, so that the people's, so that the disciples would speak all these different languages, so that the gospel would go to all these different places, so that the gospel would explode from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And now it's through that gospel and through the power of the Spirit that Christ is taking this dominion for himself and converting all peoples to himself. So let me conclude just with this this thought. As we here on earth as Christians hope and pray... For Christ to change things at the highest levels, we do pray for that. That's part of what Christ commanded us to pray for. That our governments would be changed. That the world would be changed. As we hope and pray for that, let us never lose our focus on the joys of Christ's conquering work right here in our midst. Christ's kingdom comes by setting people free. He brings those who were dead back to life. And he makes those who are blind able to see again, and they can then see the reality of God's holiness and the amazing gift of grace of the gospel. We're called to hope and pray for the big things. Let's not lose sight of the little ways in which the big things move forward. Christ establishes his kingdom by drawing sinners to himself and setting men and women free. What a joy it is to see that work happening also in our midst, and to be a part of that work as people are freed from slavery to sin. And it is slavery that holds this world in darkness. Slavery to sin, slavery of hatred, slavery to addiction, slavery to lust, slavery to power. That's what Christ's kingdom is setting people free from. And then as the gospel takes hold of individual peoples, it spreads through communities and entire nations. What a privilege that we have of being a part of that work, of seeing it happen in the small things, in our own midst, in individual hearts and lives, and knowing that God is using those small pieces of his kingdom-building work to ultimately change the entire earth. So let's pray that his kingdom would come, that justice and righteousness would come. God knows this earth needs it. And let's pray that it would begin right here in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own homes, that our lives, our marriages, our, our roles as parents, our roles within the church would be transformed and that that would be the beginning of Christ's work throughout this community. We know that Christ is king. Earth has a new capital city, and it is heaven from which Christ reigns. And from there, we know Christ will continue to reign until the day comes when he's put all his enemies under his feet. Amen.